0: Mona and you're listening to India Booked, a podcast where we lean into the idea of India through its literature and we speak to authors who bring this to life. Regardless of what your views about religion might be, you cannot deny that food cooked in the name of religion is absolutely delicious. Whether it's piping hot kara prasad or a lavish Navratri feast, we've all grown up relishing different kinds of religious cuisine. In Bhagwan Ke Bhagwan or Food of the Gods, a cookbook and a travelogue come and explore the connection between food and faith to the communities of India. There are legends, angsty perspectives, completely interesting anecdotes, and a couple of live lessons with a whole lot of food and recipes. You'd be surprised to know about rice beer in a Christian village in Meghalaya. You will learn about food that's fed to departed Parsi souls. We even take a journey through a kolkata based Jewish community in decline and talk to Tibetan monks who serve something called Preta, a hungry ghost. There's the 56-course feast of the Jagannath Temple. Bhagwan Ki Pakwan is an epic culinary journey, and you must tune in to listen to Varun Gupta, the author of the book on India Booked. who's actually written a smashing book. Food is something that I've always wanted to explore on this podcast and what better to actually understand a bit about how we consume through the lens of our faith and religion. Welcome to the show, Varud.
1: Thank you very much for having me. Very excited to be here.
0: So the first thing that I have to ask you is how much of a foodie are you?
1: Uh, (laughs) um, Not to brag. I think I take foodie to a, a different level. For me, traveling to a place, uh, eating the cuisine just isn't a factor of eating and, you know, clicking pictures. A lot of my vacations are traveled specifically and designed around food, where I I spend time, you know, interviewing people, interacting with people. Even if it's not for a book, it's just the way I travel now. Um, I love diving into culinary culture.
0: What part of, you know, this curiosity about the culinary cultures led to this book?
1: Yeah, so a few years before this book came out, I was working a cushy job, working as a consultant in the States. But about halfway through that job, I had a bout with uh, depression, wasn't exactly what I was looking for. And I went through what's called, you know, the token millennial existential crisis. And the idea was, I knew there was something around food and travel that I've always been very passionate about. Point came where I just had to get out there and try it for myself, and so I spent a good year and a half, two years, traveling to different countries, picking up jobs along the way to make it some semblance of affordable. That's very much where I started with this journey was, you know, just learning about food and what is it about food that excites me. What is it about travel? What's the reason for going to these different countries? Um, as part of this journey, India was a place that you know I'd come and visited growing up, but I hadn't had the chance to live in India for an extended amount of time. It was kind of like summer vacations. And so uh, when I did show up here, I was passionate about food. And Devon was the same way. Uh, He runs a production studio where food photography and food content is like their focus. And so it became kind of a natural collaboration. I liked to write about food. He liked to take pictures of food. And food and faith was kind of a natural evolution of what I was going through. You know, I was going through a phase of trying to figure out purpose and identity and fate. At the same time. Food in India is so intertwined with these aspects. And so, while Bhagwan Ke Pakwan is a very snazzy title, very simply, just the exploration of food and faith was a very natural conclusion to come to.
0: To me, you know, when I read the title, I had this that's probably because of my upbringing as a Hindu again, right? To me, the connotation of Bhagwan Ke Pakwan is very bhog based, right? Because that's what you have at puja. And there's a certain puritan vegetarian connotation to uh, what is cooked for the gods. And I think re- reading the book was pleasantly surprising because it breaks down all of the, uh, those perceptions that we have about uh, uh, food for the gods being a particular way and, and largely something that's consumed, say, by the Hindus. Or But you guys actually traveled everywhere from Meghalaya to Spiti to gujarat to bengal and actually have discovered everything from non-vegetarian influences to the use of alcohol so how was that and what did that sort of perception of a very mainstream india which people like me carry versus the reality which is so fluid
1: you can't see me right now but i'm smiling as you said that because that was very much what i wanted someone to take away reading this book um, understanding the plurality and the diversity of not only our food, but our communities around India that even for people, I think living in the country longer than I have still haven't experienced and haven't seen. Not only was it to bring to light these communities, but a lot of these communities are slowly fading away. Um, as we saw in Calcutta with the Jewish community, They've gone from a thousand to just a few 20 individuals trying to preserve this faith in food. The same with Megalia, They're on this kind of cusp of entering uh, modern times. You know, everyone has a cell phone these days. Everyone has technology and everyone wants what's being advertised to them. And slowly that traditional, that lifestyle that used to exist, even in these small enclaves in India are slowly fading away. It's not for me to comment whether that's good or bad. I think these communities are going to make their own choice. But the objective of this book was just very much that how can we change the perception of how people are looking at India or even how people are looking <laughs> at the country that they've been living in, understanding there's a lot more than what's this predominant North Indian lifestyle. And a lot of that also has to do with food. One of the main comments we got was, how can you have a book called Bhagwan Ki Bhagwan, but you have pictures of uh, meat and alcohol in it and you know, that's not us making a statement. That's just the true nature of things in this country.
0: Absolutely. And I think, the book came out right before a lot of divisive conversations started happening around food and certain representations of food. So I really think the way the book's written is also very chatty and, and you know, so conversational. It, it's not very high bro in, in its approach. It's very embracing and it's, it's literally like two guys on a trip and having fun with a lot of odd food. It could be anything else, but the fact that it's about faith and, and different aspects of those faith is what ties it together. Did you guys receive any flack for say, not representing South Indian faith in the book? I'm curious.
1: Absolutely. You know, when we started researching, I had a list of about 30 to 40 places that I wanted to go to. Obviously, not only was time and constraint, but we had to think about budgets as well and places that we could get to and do justice to the story material. Even as we pieced together the places, uh, our sixth place got cut, um, just a matter of logistics and getting to the place that we wanted to get to. So yeah, we explored a little bit of South India on our own. Uh, it did not make it into the book, unfortunately. And that's why there's just so much more to tap into and explore and definitely eat in India that while we, we try to give the, a flavor of each of the regions, there's just way too much more to still tackle.
0: So I've read the book, but for people who've not read the book, is there one particular state that you visited that really stayed with you as opposed to the other experiences? Maybe from a personal lens, not really so much from
1: the book. Absolutely, Megalia to me was not only just a very beautiful experience, being living in the village with people that were so heartwarming and so gracious to bring us in and share their stories, and feed us. On top of that, the head of the village still calls me on a regular basis uh, to check in see how things are going. That to me became such a rewarding experience. And from the book's perspective, we talk about just the perspective change that happens. Uh, it's the reason why the it became the first chapter because it really brings you into what we wanted to do is hopefully shatter your, uh, your perceptions and uh, what you're expecting to get from this book off the bat. With the tribe, wrestling between their traditional faith and Christianity, but also the culture that used to exist in modern times, as well as that food, um, that's truly, truly unique.
0: So you actually do have this very detailed description in the book around, you know, the chicken entrails and the whole bamboo process and the ceremony, right? And the whole ceremonial aspect. And it's so fascinating for someone who probably only thinks of this, if I were to probably envision it without having read the book, I would think of a very typical, you know, body and blood of Jesus Christ sort of ceremony. That there'll be wine or something along those lines. But to actually have the kind of food people eat, and and you know even and the pictures, and obviously the book is beautiful because of the visuals. Um. And and perhaps I think one of the strengths for me for the book was that it's, it's just the right meld of like a coffee table book and a nonfiction book. So you're immersed in the beauty of the images and, and how striking they are. I'm glad for them because if it had not been for the pictures, it would have been really difficult to even imagine what some of that would be like. What do you think really from a culinary standpoint stood out for you in the experience that you had at meghalaya in terms of the kind of ingredients or the lay they, that they had for the meals that they had planned out? For?
1: You talk about the, the ceremony and that to us was our first day there. Um, we had just arrived to the hills, um, slightly tired because we'd done it right after our Kolkata trip. And uh, after just, you know, an hour of sitting and eating, we were immediately whisked away to one of the neighboring villages to witness this ceremony. Um, And so Megalia started with the bang. And one of the tying, the thematic elements that really brought that experience together was this idea of rice beer. Um, As one of uh, the people there had told us, rice beer is seen as like the true food of the gods. Um... My favorite quote, it's seen as the food of the gods doesn't make you drunk, just lively. Um, But more importantly, like rice beer became such an experience over that weekend. It was everywhere. Um, From the ceremony to something drink, being drunk as celebrations, uh, we didn't actually consume much water while we were there. It was rice beer. Even then from the June cultivation harvest, uh, there was these ladies who had these bamboo pipes laid on their back and they were going everywhere, pouring rice beer into the mugs, of the men who were tilling the fields. And what became, you know, can be seen as a tiring experience of working the land became, you know, a celebration of dance. Um, And so rice beer, just a simple ingredient, encapsulates so much about not only the food, but also the culture of this community. Um, So I'll never forget it. Um, Living in Delhi, I've been on the hunt for rice beer on a regular basis, just to bring back those same memories.
0: I also think that um, how something is consumed makes so much difference to the experience, right? For instance, when you guys speak about the 56-course meal at Jagannath Temple versus this very humble experience of somebody constantly refilling you know, your rice beer for you and and not and being immensely hospitable. Not just the food people eat, but the way that they present it to the gods of the ceremony is also something that I think stood to out for me.
1: What's very interesting, and I, I learned this through my travels, is that even the fanciest restaurants can fall short if you're not having an experience or you're not sharing it with someone. One of my personal exper- experiences one in Argentina, when I was learning how to uh, cook Argentinian barbecue... Um, was that, you know, the meat, while great and while a central element, you can't have the meal without it, um, there's an experience that really surrounds the consumption of going out to the parks, drinking wine, playing music, um, sharing in that experience with people becomes just as important of a factor than food. Um, And I think that's why food becomes and is such a universal topic is because it touches upon so much within our lives. Not only from senses, from taste to feeling, um, but the memories that we have with food. So everyone has memories of food, whether good or bad, um, that really define our outlook on so many different things.
0: Food that's to do with faith, right? Of food that you consume together at a religious ceremony or during a funeral. Uh, is always communal in nature, and I think that really uplifts the Even otherwise, I think traditionally, uh, because we're such a collectivist and community driven society, we, we've we always sort of eaten together in like larger families. And a lot of what I say, solitary consumption of food, right? Like eating something while watching Netflix is, is something that's very limited to a certain sect. Or the population. Even today, I think most of India really eats together, cooks together, chops the vegetables together. But the whole experience of eating with the community is is something that I think that, that's also consistent. Part, which is the whole time that you spend with the Kolkata, right? A, a disappearing community. How How did you actually decide that you had to reach out to this very, very niche group of people? And what was your experience of interacting with them like?
1: As I mentioned, we start off with a list of places, Um, and even the six places that we had pitched to Penguin as part of the book, I don't think any of them actually made it to the eventual product. Uh, Once we started diving into research, there was obviously, okay, can we get to this place? Does it make sense? All those characteristics, but there was also this gut feeling of, hey, the story here is just too remarkable. Even if you think we might not be able to find all the information, I want to go here. Um, and Kolkata very much started off with that. Like, I just knew about this community that's been struggling to uh, continue and preserve both the faith and their culture um, and their food. And just that was enough for me to be like, OK, we have to go here. Divang. This has to be a part of the story. Um, and most of the, what we found out was on the ground there, um, interacting with people. And they were truly gracious hosts, um, both Mrs. Cohen and uh, Mrs. Silliman, uh, spending time with us. We spent multiple days um, truly just exploring the institutions that this community has imparted on the streets of Kolkata, from the synagogue to the the schools. It was very unique in a way of we're not actually exploring such a large community, but this tiny fragment that remains um, and how they're choosing to spend that their time uh, preserving all of this.
0: I actually studied at Zevia's in Calcutta, so that whole Park Street Synagogue stretch, you know, it, it really did like strike me. But you know, for uh, and because you spoke about Ms. Silliman, meeting people, right? So whether it's uh, the tribe's folk at, uh, in Meghalaya or Mr. Silliman, there's also this very interesting sort of conversation around people, right? I and- recall this one whole piece on this lady called Esther Abraham who who apparently is a Jew and she becomes Miss India in 1947 uh, while she's pregnant uh, with the child of a Shia Muslim. And, and there are these people's stories, right, driven into the book. Who for you really stood out as, as one of the peculiar characters of the people you met on this journey?
1: Peculiar characters? My favorite characters. There was two, um, Albanus in Megalia, but also uh, in Spiti, there was one who called himself Chinggis Khan, um, and we never got to the bottom of why his nickname was Chinggis Khan. It just became like, okay, cool, we're now staying at Chinggis Khan's house. He was another person who basically took us in for two days. Uh, what was happening during the time in Spiti was the harvest. Um, all the grains were being collected. And we spent those two days not only learning about the grains, but he turned his little stove in the living space into our cooking demonstration area. And he actually cooked meals for us live. Uh, Another thing is, you know, when you go to these small communities, the way people bring you in um, is truly spectacular. And Chengis was one of those that did that. And uh, he also uses his kind of like a storage room to dry and preserve meats. Um, as well as makes his own moonshine. Uh, And he taught us a lot about also the culture that surrounds alcohol. For instance, the superstition of Pritha, the hungry ghosts that still wander about. Um, And so often when you're eating or drinking as with alcohol, you're going to lob a little piece of ghee on the rim of a glass kind of like offering it to these ghosts before partaking yourself
0: this pithy experience also i think brought in this whole piece right where you speak about how black pea cultivation is being replaced by uh, green pea or, or some other crop right to that effect what did that sort of is that indicative of this whole change in practices i know we spoke about a little earlier in our conversation about how all of this is changing right and there's no real incentive to preservation as well and whether it's ingredients or methods was that probably one of the reasons that uh, you both have kept the recipes so authentic and and so by the book and and by the tradition because I'm sure there must have been that impulse to simplify it for adoption or having people find it easier to actually cook them
1: what this book became is it just became kind of this hodgepodge of stories because stuff like the story of the black peas um which is being slowly placed replaced by the green peas because it's more profitable although it's bad for the environment it doesn't survive as well in the harsh climate and thus needs more pesticides and so you have this this conflict that's going on and think you're really harping on something that is representative with that conflict is okay why should people be preserving their cultures Um, If someone from Meghalaya wants, you know, a snazzy car, wants to give up the life in the village and move to the city, um, it is not really our place to comment on that. Um, We would just come off as hypocrites, ourselves staying in Delhi, living in air-conditioned rooms, right? Um, It's not our place to comment on how the lifestyles are changing, um, what we could do, and we wanted to stay as third-party as possible um even with something just as the recipes was okay we're here to document and if no one else is going to preserve it at least this recipe now does exist for a future generation to see. Very few cases of where we would alter the recipe. It was mainly you know offering suggestions of okay this can be used instead. Um, but it became very important to me not to go in and add my own take to these things. It was like okay this was the recipe as we were taught and as we experienced, let it exist for that matter of its own. Um, And if a city dweller or someone else far away from this community wants to recreate it, they can attempt to or give it their own spin. At least let this play its part in preservation. A weird way, it was as writing the story, you're becoming a part of the story. I mean, you have that subjective lens, right, when you're writing about another community and another culture. And so one thing I wanted to do as much as possible was, although keep the story engaging and have these conversations with people, was not to try to offer my own lens or, or distort an experience for the sake of entertainment.
0: So how, was there any fear of appropriation? I don't know if either you or Devang are religious or atheist or agnostic or whatever that spectrum is, but how much of how you perceive a community or a practice was as a result of your personal beliefs or were you able to completely switch off?
1: We set it up in the prologue, um, our (laughs) religious identities. Um, I'm very much in a strange state of whether it's polytheistic or agnostic. Um, I do, I am a person of faith, but not religion, if that makes sense. Um, And so I tried my best not to be biased or not to be partial on the things that we were learning along the way. Um, When it comes to appropriation, it's such a difficult thing. Us going into a place that we might not necessarily belong in the first place and kind of captivating, capturing those stories. What I can say is that what we tried to do, what I really tried to do was come at it from a very genuine perspective. And I think a lot of that happens as a matter of preservation and documenting again and not trying to distort things for my own benefit. I don't know if I answered this eloquently at all. Very much, while I don't myself identify with one religion, I find myself to be on a constant flux of faith. And so, for me, the journey was to genuinely learn about these different cultures that exist around us.
0: I think that TLDR quite summed it well. So, uh, you don't have to worry about not having been able to answer that. What really stands out is that it's not a book of recipes as much as it's a book with recipes. How did you go about picking what recipes needed to be in there?
1: Which was another difficult thing because we probably ate three times the amount of the recipes that actually made it into the book. I think it ultimately came down to, one was the recipes that stood out to us or that might be different from the norm of consumption that we either perceive in our own lives or have maybe assumed or expected from these communities. And the second was... Which of these dishes are really indicative of the story and the experience that we got on ground? You know, what are the ones that really resonated with the story that we were trying to tell? Um, for instance, you know, the, the dish chitney that we talk about, which is from Kolkata, identify as the way that uh, the local produce of Kolkata kind of intertwined with the cuisine of the Jewish community that had come to find that place as their own. So the main thing was what do these dishes have to say about the culture and the cuisine um, rather than just existing as dishes of their own? And what you say was about it being a cookbook with recipes, sorry, uh, a food book with recipes is very much true. Um, It's in a strange genre because it's not primarily a food narrative because we had the amazing combination of writing with the pictures, Um, but it's also not a recipe book. And so, I mean it's kind of this hodgepodge in between that I think tries to capture these communities as well as offering insight into the food in kind of our own way. And as you mentioned earlier on, it's kind of very much our perspective going through it as two people just traveling through these communities. I'm not a highbrow person myself, and I didn't want to unnecessarily, you know, formalize an experience. Um, as you have seen, Megalia, we had fun there while also learning a thing or two about the food and faith
0: what about the whole experience do you think is something that you'd like to actually tweak or something that made you uncomfortable whether it was in terms of the journey or people you met or, or food you ate was there something that you wish you could redo undo
1: simply i wish i had more time obviously in each location, there's never enough time to fully explore a culture. Um, I also wish I had enough belly space to eat more things while I was there. Um, But on a a more serious note, what you said earlier, it's not something that I would redo, um, but this idea of me as an outsider going in, I still feel the fear of it. Um, I still ask myself, you know, did I do justice to this community? Did I do justice to the food? Did I play the part that I need to in the most respectful way? So, I'm not sure if it's something that I would necessarily repeat um but it is something that even though it's been this book has been out for like a year now, I still fear it sometimes you know did I do it properly? was my role to play done um with genuine intent
0: I'm sure uh, if if you're thinking about it a lot uh more than you should it, it can be a little burdensome, I guess in some ways, but as a reader, it doesn't strike one as such it seems and and probably that's also due to the tonality of the book right it's not um, it's not somebody seeking to intellectualize the process it's somebody observing and and commenting but in a very very not casual tone but in a very conversational tone so it doesn't come across like that Uh, though of course i think what you guys have done is delved into a lot of subcultures that probably will not ever be spoken about in popular literature uh, anytime soon, right? It's not a walk into Chani Chok or it's not entering some uh, Khao gully in, in Mumbai. It's, it's a very precarious space and time and not something that people talk about. So I, I do understand where that kind of thinking and the responsibility comes from. I wanted to ask you about the Parsi experience. Yeah, the Parsi experience was I think also interesting because it's not a religious ceremony right it's it's an offering associated with the death or passing away
1: what you said earlier I think is very important it's the idea that there's two conflicts there's you know some of these communities might not be spoken about and so while I can sit and I can fear um, whether it was my voice that needed to say it I think I do have to tell myself that there's a greater injustice in not the story being told at all, even maybe from the wrong voice. So I hope that it means a lot to me that that's what your takeaway from the book was. Um, When it comes to Udvara, um, again, this was a place that there was a story that I'd found online, um, you know, hints at where this culture came from and how it's kind of blossomed into its own little enclave. Um, But, When we landed on location, we met uh, Arvad Hathiram, who basically spent three days with us just telling us so much information. Um, I was mind blown. And I think what you see in the book is that each chapter kind of takes on a feeling of its own. Kolkata does get a bit serious because we're talking about a community in decline. Meanwhile, when we get to Udvara, we start talking about, you know, space and souls and universality. Um, I think that chapter takes a bit of a life of its own in that way.
0: Thanks, Farud. I think this conversation has been fun, but also very illuminating because I don't think we hear these voices in these conversations in the mainstream. I want to ask you, what is one book that if you had to recommend to people listening into the podcast that you think that they must read?
1: Okay. Um, is this limited to a genre, or can you suggest my favorite book ever?
0: You can. Let's do it this way. Why don't you suggest your favorite book ever, and also suggest something that you think is a good book on or about or written by an Indian author?
1: First, my favorite book ever. It's a fiction book by Italo Calvino. It's called If on a Winter's Night a Traveler. Um, if you read that book, you see where a lot of my personal inspirations have come from. Um, what this author has done is. Um, not only kind of really broken that fourth wall with between writer and reader, um, but very much is kind of acknowledging the experience of reading for the reader at the same time. And so uh, I found that to be very, very enlightening. And then the second, which I think it's not by an Indian author, um, but it was something that's very important to me now. And it was something that I was reading while going through Book Von it's called Writing the Other by Nisi Schall. And it's a, a book that if you are gonna explore other lenses, whether from a nonfiction or fiction perspective, I think it's something to read and take into consideration. Um, it talks a lot a bit about what we experienced in this book was you know, tackling or looking outside of the dominant paradigm, um, how you can be true to whether you're creating these characters or interacting with these characters. And so a lot of I think it's relevant to the conversation that we've had today of, uh, you know, how does someone who is an outsider go and explore a topic?
0: Thank you so much for that. I want to ask you a couple of fun questions to end with, which have nothing to do with the book.
1: Sounds good. Hit me.
0: What's your favorite ingredient to cook with?
1: Ooh, I feel like that changes for a lot of my early cooking life. It was this spicy uh, soybean paste from Korea called gochujang. Um, basically it's so universally usable as a marinade or a dip you want to make a quick batch of kimchi i've recently balsamic vinegar i think i've found to be a very underrated ingredient these days um again as a marinade or a topping on salads or a dipping sauce these just you know simple ingredients can be used in such a multitude of ways and i like having a very functional pantry
0: what's your favorite restaurant in india
1: there's a little enclave in Delhi, uh, Humayupur. And in Humayupur, there are a lot of great restaurants have opened up that try to uh, encapsulate the cuisines of the Northeast, both Meghalaya and Nagaland. Um, I have not visited Nagaland myself yet. And so there's a restaurant I go to that I love eating at um, to get that taste of food. And then there's another one which basically helps me bring back those memories of Meghalaya. Um, and so I have found recently in Delhi that there's a lot more of these regional cuisines that are popping up, and I hope they continue to do so, um, because there's just so much food from India itself um, that's exciting to eat.
0: What's an ingredient that you're most afraid of using?
1: I think people know me as someone who kind of eats everything. So the two few things that I ha- have not enjoyed is this very obscure ingredient from Chile, which is called piure. It looks like a sun-dried tomato, but it isn't. It's actually like this weird organism that uh, lives underwater and has like a very metallic taste. But uh, I'm not too apprehensive of eating things. I've eaten quite a few strange things (laughs) in my time.
0: What's uh, your favorite midnight snack? Uh,
1: Ramen noodles, instant noodles.
0: Uh, What's your favorite comfort food?
1: Um, One was before I started living in India uh it was definitely dal chawal and like the dal chawal with hing mitch kachoka that we would have at home um but now living in india i feel like i crave ka khana less um so it's become you know uh the tex-mex food that i grew up eating and barbecue food um i miss that quite a bit
0: what would you rather have breakfast for dinner or dinner for breakfast
1: uh, breakfast for dinner
0: what's your favorite kitchen gadget
1: <laughs> A good reliable chef's knife, uh, might be lame. Or oh, or a hand blender, um, or those micros, <laughs> or a micro zester, um, because they can be used in a lot of ways.
0: What's your favorite Indian uh, cuisine?
1: That's difficult. Um, I have come to really enjoy, um, what I've eaten of Megalia. Um, the, just the the different flavors and textures that come in with something like chicken bamboo. Um, as well as just the way pork is used. I have really started to enjoy that cuisine. But also, like, what you get at Andhra Bhavan in Delhi, which is kind of like that uh, the thali experience, where you get uh, mutton fry and vegetables, and um, that's too difficult of a question. There's too much food to eat.
0: Actually, my next and last question was an Andhra Thali or a Rajasthani Thali, but I think I have my answer already.
1: There you go. And Andra Thali. Because, I mean, Andhra Bhavan just made... It. It's
0: off. Thank you so much, Varud. It's been an absolutely fun conversation, learning about your trip, about the book, about the different aspects. Traveling through India while eating and talking about faith came through for you guys. I hope you do a round two of this book and explore some of the other things that left on those... Uh, on the first listicle that you made to explore... So we'll be watching out for that. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I'm very honored to be here. There's a lot more food to come. Um, not working on the round two yet, but I'm working on an extended uh, book on just all these different food experiences that I've been fortunate enough to experience the past few years, very much in the same tonality and vein as uh, Bhagwan Kipakwan. But thank you very much for having me today.
0: That's actually great to know. Till the time Varut comes out with his next book, all of you can go and buy Bhagwan Ke Bhagwan on Amazon or Flipkart. It's also available in local bookstores. Take care, everyone, and thank you for listening. Varud Gupta is on Twitter and on Instagram. Do not forget to follow him and check out his amazing pictures and recipes. You can buy his book off Amazon or an independent bookstore near you. Do not forget to tune in to us on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Ghana, and HT Smartcast.